A uh, couple things I want to thank our sponsors for this evening. Uh, that's U.S. Bank, uh, Shaw Construction, uh, the Roaring Fork Club, uh, and of course, Basalt Chamber. And then we'd also love to thank the town of Basalt and our, our illustrious mayor, Ms. Witsit, uh, for helping us get this moving. And um, without further ado, I will introduce Chris from the chamber to uh, tell you about what's going on tonight. Thank you, guys. Good evening, everyone. Ooh, wow. Okay. I'm Chris Matera. I'm the executive director of the Basalt Chamber of Commerce. Uh, it has been quite the busy week here in Basalt, and hopefully you've gone to some of our activities. And we have many more the rest of this week. We have at least two more after this evening. Uh, so we hope to see you there. We've run the spectrum from concerts to a first responder thank you. We have a community picnic on Saturday. And then we have an entrepreneurship educational focused event on Monday. So hope to see you there as well. We're very glad you came out this evening for B Talks. This is the sixth installment of the series. Um, it started out last May, and it was, um, from what I've heard, the brainchild of our mayor. So we're really glad that this has come to fruition. It's evolved over time, and each event has a different theme. Last uh, one in May was a theme about amazing and inspiring women, and tonight's theme is behind the art. So we have several different speakers who are gonna kind of peel back the curtain in their world of art and what we can, you know, we don't get to see normally. So, our Masters of Ceremonies this evening is Glenn H. Smith. He describes himself as an artist, sculptor, and maker of things, or my favorite line when I was doing research about him is an expert in all things that don't make money. I think being in a small mountain town, we understand how that works. <laughs> and we find and live here because of our passions. So I'm very excited to welcome him. He is a Colorado native and very proud for that. Um, again, I'd like to also thank our sponsors. We're very grateful for their contribution for this event. But without further ado, our Master of Ceremonies, Glenn. Thank you, thank you. I need a chair. It's so funny to sit up, stand up on his stage for the first time without a comedy set in mind, right? It's like I usually get up here and I do comedy and it's usually very adult. And there's some adults in here, so we're good with that. But I was, I was asked, which I'm very honored, and by the way, the Spicy Boys, come on. I love those guys. I'm like going, they're so good. I dig it. Instead of going, man, where'd they go? Um, but I was asked, and uh, the whole idea was to be discussing what it's like to be behind the arts in basalt or in, in the valley or whatever we're going to be doing. You know, and I, st I started thinking about that, going, is that what I really, really want to talk about, about being an artist and saying that, you know, for those of you who know me, does anyone here know me? A few hands, but does any, no one really knows what I do. It's really the truth. Well, you know that you know me as an artist and a sculptor. I'm also a fly fishing guide. I've been a professional fly fishing guide for 24 years at Taylor Creek Fly Shop in Basalt, which is great. I am also a builder. I designed and built the Pullman. I built two houses. I design interiors. I make furniture. I am also, a lot of people know me as a chef. 
right? I'm Chef Glenn, whatever. It's always, I'm always some, it's always blah, blah, it's always blank Glenn is what I do. That's my job. That's my title is I don't know what that is. It's always, I like to say that my, my, my this is actual truth, is my LLC is generally undeclared LLC. <laughs> and it's the truth. I really, you know, I, I really haven't chosen a major yet. But the point being, what I want to get to and what I want to discuss is kind of how I got to this place and being able to do all these different things, specifically in this valley. I'm a born and raised Colorado native. I've been raised in Denver. I'm uh, 54 years old, um, been in this valley 30 years. I remember 18 of those years. <laughs> and for anyone who's been here for any length of time, you know what I'm speaking about. It's very, it can be engulfing. I came here in my, came first in my early 20s and I left and I came back, but this has always been home for me. I've always had a gravitational pull to living in this valley. And I'm going to get back to why that is, but I want to tell you how that ended up here. When I was a kid, I got, I've been an artist pretty much my entire life. Um, and the point being, say, as an artist in this valley or being a creative, and I'm using the word A, I'm going to say, well, I want to drop that. I want to say how to be creative in this valley. And to be creative in this valley doesn't mean that you necessarily produce works of art or whatever you do. It's about how you use and how you can really become part of this valley creatively. And when I was a kid, I was a bit of a rambunctious, troubled, um, unruly, spoiled. Uh, well, not, I know, right? Can you believe it? I kind of still am, but I just, it, I, I now satiate that with liquor. Um, <laughs> That's not really true. <laughs> but the, uh, what I think is interesting is that when I was a kid, I was pretty, pretty much, I came from a family of seven, seven kids. But we weren't really, it was more like by proxy seven. They weren't really, I wasn't like eight is enough and I was the last kid. I was like a mixed match kid and a very father married three times, mother married twice, mixed match family like that. That's kind of how my upbringing was. And I was the last one. So... The preface of this whole thing is, comes down to the fact that, you know, I didn't, um, I was kind of a mama's boy because dad was already tired of kids when I was growing up. So I didn't really have that fathering need that you probably have. It's like I was more like, whatever kid, go do your thing. And all my other brothers were um, business guys and they were in the military and they did these kind of things. Like Me, I was racing BMX. I was riding on the sidewalks, I was painting the walls, I was doing all this kind of stuff, and my family didn't really know how to deal with that. But my neighbor did, right? So I had a really good friend, exactly the same age as me, four days older than me, I was very close to his family. So as I was growing up, it's like, you know, she, Mrs. Smirnoff, she was the one who kind of fostered me Creative, creatively. But my dad kind of knew, he was back in it, and he was in the manufacturing, he did a lot of, a lot of different things, and, um, but, he wasn't really, didn't quite understand how to take me because back in the day, there wasn't the diagnosis of HDAD. What is it? What is it? Um, ADHD, see? I can't remember what it's called. Or ADD, all those kind of things. It was just I was rambunctious and I needed to settle down and stand in a corner for two roundup. So they kind of put me off to the side for that. It's like, just let him be, let him, do it, let, let him burn his energy, right? And there wasn't really an outlet for me. But I, my dad, when I was at, when one of my favorite Christmas gifts I remember was um, 
you know, we, we got shirts and bad shoes and all kinds of stuff like that. But one time I, I got a Christmas gift that was a key. I had a little box about this big. The only thing was a box underneath the tree about this big, right? Three inches by two inches under the tree. All my brothers had all the stuff in the world. I had this box. I'm like, why do you hate me so much? So, but I opened up the box and it was a key, right? And there's a key to the trunk of his car. I'm like, well, okay, it's kind of cool. I thought either I was going to go in the trunk or I don't know what was going to be. But I opened up the trunk and opened up and inside of it was a whole bunch of hand tools, a bunch of pieces of wood and glue, right? It was everything for me to build my own shop underneath the staircase when I was a kid. So I'm thinking, no, this is kind of cool. He's kind of getting me now. So I built this shop with that tool. Still my, one of my favorite gifts I've ever gotten was all these things. But that was kind of the, f and that was probably, what is that, 10? No, I was probably about four, five, six years old at that point. So I started making things and just making and making, making things. And my grandmother loved it so much because I was always like making things. I made like Christmas ornaments. I, you know, I was, I made, do you remember Estes, Estes rocket models, the, the model rockets? I built every single one ever available because my dad made all the parts for Estes rocket. So I got all the inside deal. It was fantastic. And Model cars. I had so many I could cover an entire wall of model car boxes. My mom started buying me foreign models that were written in German or Dutch just to make it harder for me to assemble them. And so I do that. I build them, build them, build them. Then she gave me a boat, like a, um, a, a um, clipper ship, a wood one. It had actually had to carve everything together, right? So I got, was always good with my hands. So I put this whole thing together. I'm like, this is. Kind of cool. So I just um, really, really been into that. When I, was, when I got into junior high school, I was like the youngest kid to have certification on all the power tools in the shop, which anyone who goes to school here like this, it's not the easy thing to do. So power saws. So I was training. I love the fact that I was teaching other kids how to use the most dangerous tools in the planet. It's like, here, the kids I didn't like, push it a little harder. So it was, it was they got me away from that. But it was... It was very important to me to find that outlet, but I didn't have the um, I didn't have the support. It was never in the plan for me to go to college, right? And as I got a little older, when I turned 15, 16, and I was saying that pretty much a mama's boy, and dad um, was he was a business guy and didn't really know how to relate to me. When I was 16, my mother committed suicide, right? And that fundamentally changed me. It made me, I was kind of a, somewhat of a wallflower kind of guy. Not a wallflower, it was kind of like off to the side, a misfit kid. I was kind of, I was, I've, been, I've been six foot four since I was five, right? So I was always a little gangly kid, you know, never really the first on team, all that kind of stuff. But I kind of like, you know, it was, it, was, it was tough. But when my mom passed away that time, when she, when she did what she did, and I didn't really have the family support, my dad, like, then he tried to relate, and it doesn't really, you know, I was kind of on my own. And that's when I became a class clown. That became my outlet, was to become the class clown. It became a way for me to get the attention I felt I needed, or whatever. It, just, it, was, it was a really kind of thing. But I also realized that I was kind of good at it, right? I was good at this. And I had an English teacher that took me under his wing. He said, you know what? I was only at the time, what are you in high school and when you're 10th grade? Probably 13 something like that. I was 13 years old, and he wanted to get me on the stage at Comedy Works and help me write material at 13, and I was just a pissed off kid just trying to vent, and he's seeing something like that. That kind of worked its way through, and I realized that was a 
good personality trait for me. It worked for me. And I started to learn how to deal with this. So I was finding these avenues to go through um, all the different kind of trauma, all the different kind of stuff that I had like this. And I was, I, I, I was asked to leave the house at when I, on my 17th birthday. So I was on my own at 17. So college was never in the mix. Right, my the thing was, I was my goal when I was in high school and everything like that was to be. I wanted to be the art director for Levi's jeans back in the day. And anyone who grew up in that time, it was the coolest thing ever to be. It would be equivalent to being like the Nike creative director now or whatever. It'd be like that. I was like, that's what I want to be. But I, I, I applied to Art Center, I applied to RISD, I applied to all the ones. But a, they cost a lot of money. B, I did get accepted to one. But it was just out of my range. I was at Art Center in Pasadena. I had the opportunity to go there, but I couldn't do that. But I still wanted to be creative. It's a hard business to make money in being creative. So what I did is I'm thinking, well, where's the best of both worlds? So I got a job in a restaurant. And when I started working in restaurants at 17 to feed myself and 18 to feed myself and whatever, make money and pay my rent and those kind of things, I... Um, I realize this is pretty cool because food is a fantastic medium, right? I don't look at food as food. It's a great product to work with. You can manipulate it. It can be beautiful. It can be, how many people look at the plate before you even start eating, right? There's a lot to that. There's a lot when it comes down to the creative thing. But what I really love about it versus like doing paintings for me or doing like gallery work is that people will tell you your food suck. They won't tell you that when you're at the art gallery. They'll just drink your free wine and walk around and leave. So it was a really neat, creative way for me to go, hey, I'm getting instant critiques out of this. This is pretty awesome. So I started cooking, and that allowed me to travel. So I was traveling, traveling, working. I got a, job, a lot of jobs at different hotels. I started getting good, and I saw the level I wanted to be at. Hence, brings it into this valley. I uh, was living in Arizona at the time. I chased a girl to Arizona, which I think a lot of people chase girls everywhere. I chased this one back in the day when I was 22 to Arizona. I started working in resorts down there. And I'm thinking, this is kind of cool. But resorts start, um, you know, they're kind of tough to they work in, but they were interlaced, right? So I started working here in the summers. So I was going back and forth, back and forth. But I wanted to be back home. This is Colorado, right? And I'm thinking, this is, this is home for me. So when I got back to the valley, I realized that this is a great place for me to do all of this, all of the different things I do. So when I started cooking, I cooked there. I was in the valley doing the work creatively. I had top jobs at the chef at the Caribou Club. I've been at the Maroon Creek Club. I do private chef work. I still do private chef work and those things like that. And then I... Um, and when I turned 30, I had heart surgery. I had a valve replacement. My physician said, you need to get out of the kitchens and lower your stress. So I became a fishing guy because I was good at fishing. Because when I was a kid, an uncle took me fishing. I learned how to fly fish. I lied my way into, back in the day, 25 years ago, told the owner of the shop that I was really good. I don't know if I was done or not. He hired me that day because of my personality, how I could get along with people, and the fact that I was forthright and honest with things. So I started becoming a fly fishing guide. 
And then as I started doing that, I've been doing that all this entire time. I still do the chef work. And I decided after a while that chefing's a tough business. It's a great business to be young in. You're perfect. You're a perfect age for it. It's like, it's not a, it's not a great job for guys that are in their 50s. It hurts too much. And I don't drink that much anymore. I don't want to stay up till 2 in the morning. And I hate cleaning the floors. Right? Still a good thing. So I started, I, I, I went back to my original passion of being an artist. And I started doing artwork again. And I started sculpting again and building things and doing all these really kind of great things. But um, I mean, I've had shows at the Art Base. I've had shows up in Aspen. I've had shows in Denver. And my work is now, I mean, it's owned by, you can look at my website, glennhsmith.com, and um, look at where, who collects my art. And it's from Seattle to New York. And it's, it was really rewarding for that. But the point about being, the thing about that is being an artist and being a creative in this valley is that it wouldn't, those things wouldn't have happened in this valley because we are a very inclusive group of people and opportunities are bound in this valley. And if you know where to look and, and you get off your ego and just do what you love to do, you can actually succeed somewhat with that. I'm not saying I'm success, but I'm pretty happy about doing what I do. With, uh, with the work that I do. So, um, you know, I just think that we're, as an artist, and I mean that as a artist in fly fishing, an artist in chefing, an artist in creative works and artwork, creative when it comes to conversationalists, we are in the right place, and I love our little town. So I'm going to leave my little spiel at that, and thank you for listening to me on that. I am now going to introduce you. Oh, thank you so much. I am going to introduce uh, to, uh, well, actually, Nancy Levendahl, who I am also a very big fan of, who is an artist in the Valley here, and Bear Matthews, who is, they're going to be speaking about the BPAC. So please give a big round of applause for these two to come to the stage, and thank you very much for your time. And thank you for listening. As uh, Glenn was saying, I'm uh, an artist in the Valley. I do a lot of public art. And I was also the founding chair of the Basalt Public Art Commission. And it's more lovingly known as BPAC. So I'm, I want to share with you today the story of our first public art installation that you're seeing throughout Basalt. Our vision came out of the Our Town conversations conducted during 2013 and 14, a desire to develop an arts economy, balancing growth and culture in basalt came out of all of those passionate conversations that I'm sure many of you remember. In seeking that goal of balance, the town council established BPAC and appointed 10 of us um, to uh, serve in 2015. As you know, town is arranged like five spokes on a wheel, all spread out in multiple directions. So we decided that since public art is a new venture here, we'd present a series of temporary public art installations that visually identify us in a common connecting experience. What we were looking for in this first project was sculpture that would have a big wow factor and really get noticed and speak to our theme of discover what connects us in basalt. We initiated a valley-wide 
and an all Colorado-wide call for entry to find the best artist to create our project. 49 artists submitted qualifications. We chose three finalists to present proposals. Our, ju our jury unanimously selected Denver artist Wynne Bazell, pictured here. Because of his superior creativity, his technical skill, and his public safety standards. His five-part monumental artwork, Modio 2.0, was chosen because it creates a powerful sense of place throughout town. It speaks directly to our theme. We also wanted to catch the momentum that the first version of his artwork, called Modio, had gained while exhibited for the Summer of Dance outside the Denver Art Museum. Bazell's artistic vision of kinetic human figures expresses people moving and working together. This visually reinforces that we are each one of many parts in our community. These sculptures will now become an important part of Basalt's collective memory. Our budget to pay for such a thing came out of one of the transfer assessments specifically set aside to fund culture in our wonderful little town. June 10th was designated by a proclamation from our mayor to become Basalt Public Arts Day. And we celebrated the first one in 2017 with these inaugural public sculptures. We'd like to share with you the ideas behind them with this video produced by Lem. Jenna Mo, and I am the executive director of the Art Base in Basalt, Colorado. Uh, my name is Wynne Earl Bazell, and I am the design director at a company called Demiurge, which is a sculptural fabrication studio. I am also an architect and artist. Wynne Bazell, who is the artist and designer and design fabricator of Modio, which is the first a public art sculpture to go into basalt, implemented by the Basalt Public Art Commission. And Wynne is here from Denver. So tell us about Modio. What, what is it? How, <laughs> um, how would you describe it to someone who's never seen it before? So it was, um, you know, like you said, my background's in architecture, and I think a lot of my work is, and, and in biology and chemistry, so a lot of my work is, is often informed by those things. Um, I tend to create work that is occupiable. I want people to be able to get inside it. It's not just this kind of, you know, a statue up on a pedestal that you can, that you can admire, but it's something that you can engage with and, and even sometimes get inside. So Modio is, is like that. Um, it was designed as this hundred foot long piece that you, and you know, one end has a big bench and then the bench kind of morphs into a doorway and you can go inside the doorway and there's this really large occupiable space inside. And so, you know, people will see when, once we finished assembling all the pieces, the two largest pieces um, uh, were that big occupiable space inside. And so you can still, you know, get up underneath it and, and feel like you're occupying it. Um, some of the smaller pieces are not occupiable, um, but the one that's going by in Riverfront Park is the bench portion. So it's, you know, it's it kind of engages you to, to sit on it. So all of the upper portions are aluminum, so it's actually 
close to a thousand custom CNC pieces. Computer numerically controlled, so you know, basically this big powerful laser just goes and cuts out a thousand pieces out of a big flat sheet of aluminum. Yep. They're all completely unique. Um, if you look at the piece as a whole, you know, there's 84 human figures, and each figure has, you know, it has two feet, two sections of its legs, and a hip joint, and then the body, and then all the arms and, and the hands. And where are the sites? So there's five of them. One of them is in, um, it's near the roundabout in Willits. Right as you drive right to near, Whole Foods. Right, right near Whole Foods, near Willits Lane. It's right across the street from the roundabout and on this little grassy hill. It's actually a really beautiful site. And then one of them is by Riverside Park, and that's the bench section. And there's one um, as you cross the pedestrian bridge. Um, there's one right on the right side as you exit there, and that one's called Strike a Pose. It's the smallest of the five sections. And then there's a site at uh, the intersection of Two Rivers Road and Highway 82. Um, that's one, also one of the larger of the five sections, and um, I'm calling that piece Hitchhiker because it's it's kind of like reaching its hand up, like it's asking for a ride. So Modio yeah. 2.0, do each of the five segments have their own names now? Yes. Yep, so uh, it's in its first life, it was just Modio. Yeah. Um, in, in this new chapter, it's Modio 2.0. And so, you know, in the signage and stuff that we've created, it's actually like Modio 2.0.1, 2.0.2, through 2.0.5. And so they each have kind of a unique um, identity, um, most of which uh, was dictated by their shape or their form, just something that, the one's called Strike a Pose, One's called the Hitchhiker. Another one's called Hitch Kick, which is a dance move. One is called the Purple Portal. Do you envision a Modio 3.0? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah. Obviously, or where it's going to go, but we're definitely thinking about it going on. There's, you know. 3.0, 4.0. We want the piece to live on. Um, we've thought about putting lights on it. We've, you know, thought about painting it other colors, um, or maybe taking the paint off and doing something different. Um, there's just like lots, lots of possibilities for it, but we definitely envision it living on after basalt. Nice. Yep. I like the idea of it kind of like collecting these memories. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it. You know, it was really exciting to see it at the art museum and seeing people engage with it, and they had dance performances out in front of it. And so. Having it come here to Basalt, I'm really excited to see how people engage with it and how people enjoy it. And, and, and I think of it as kind of collecting these layers of memory every time it goes somewhere new. Yeah. So. Wynn Bazell, the designer and chief artist behind Modio 2.0, and it has five sites throughout Basalt, it being the sculpture, mm -hmm. or sculptures, depending on how you want to think about it. And they will be on view for the next two years through June of 2019. So make sure to get out and check them out. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, thank you.
Great, perfect. Um, hi, um, I'm Bear Matthews. I am the newest member of BPAT. I joined in about February of this year, and I am also a senior at Basalt High School. Um, I've been asked to talk with you today, sort of following up with Nancy's comments about the future of BPAT. So we've covered what we have done and what our visions have been, and now we're looking forward into really our strategic plan for the next two, four, even six years. Um, so firstly, I'd love to begin just by reiterating that we are a public advisory commission, and so with that in mind, it will always be our forefront mission to strengthen and develop our relationship with the town council. Um, we are here to advise them and advise them only, really. Um, also, it should be noted that we are a rather young commission. Uh, we were, let's see, we were brought to be about three years ago. Um, and to me, that, um, our youth is not a weakness. Um, we have positioned ourselves dynamically so to be that um, we don't have to worry about any of the mistakes that our neighboring communities have made um, in the implementation and execution of a public arts commission and a public arts program. Um, so three years ago, our founding vision was to put Basalt dynamically at the center of the public arts map. And it's needless to say that we still stand by that today and we will stand by that every day um, for as long as we exist beyond anything else. Um, and it is our firm belief as a commission that the expansion of a sustainable public arts program in Basalt holds large and measurable economic growth potential. Um, so with this in mind, over the past few months, we've been working diligently amongst ourselves and before town council to better define and educate many on what we see as the diversity of forms and means by which we define art. You see, if we're to truly become this flourishing beacon of an arts economy with not within not only our valley, but also Colorado, it is essential that we as a community come to understand and agree that art is so much more than just a painting or a sculpture. One of my all-time favorite quotes from Oscar Wilde goes, art is not a thing, but a way. A way of thinking, visualizing, imaginating, and best of all, inspiring. As we sit here in the temporary today, it would be negligent of me not to recognize all the means by which they have evolved and contributed to the evolution of art in basalt. From the airing of documentaries to the after-school instruction of folkloric dance, here we find ourselves in a space that defines the future of art. A space where we, the public, can not only appreciate experience, because that's what art should be all about. The collective sharing of not only creativity, but perspective. So looking ahead, we as, I mean, beyond anything else, your Basalt Public Arts Commission, want to create not only an ecosystem for art to flourish, but one by which in turn creates dialogue. Motio 2.0, the flowing large sculptures that you see all about town, are the phase one of a project we call Confluence 3. So Confluence 3 is a six-year program um, which debuted in 2017. It has two phases left, and beyond anything else, we hope that with the support of council, 
that we can have, that we can continue to showcase um, such amazing and engaging work throughout the town and with all of you. Also ahead on the horizon for us is hopefully implementing a public art grants program for the town of Basalt in support of the expansion of public art. And this is special to us because you see, we as a commission quite honestly can't think of any better way to incubate a sustainable public arts program in Basalt than inviting local artists to give back to our community to engage with all of you and to create and define what the future of Basalt Public Art looks like. Um, and so with that in mind, if you take one thing away from today, I would love to encourage each and every one of you here today because, let's be honest, you're sitting here, you're before us, you care about the arts. Everybody cares about the arts. And so I encourage each and every one of you to reach out to your council member Pick your favorite, I don't really care, um, him or her, and really delve into one main thing with them. And it's, it can be expressed in three words, and that is, I value art. Art is extremely dynamic within our community, and it has defined the evolution to bring us where we are today. And there's no doubt in my body that it will define tomorrow and every day to come. Um, so with that in mind, thank you. I think I speak on behalf of Nancy and myself in saying that it was a pleasure to speak with you and to express our thoughts. And with that in mind, we'd be happy to take any questions. Does anybody have a question? The question is, can you give us a preview of phase two? We can't, but what I can tell you is it's still gonna connect to our founding vision of discovering that what connects us in basalt. And then we'll start another uh, call for qualifications statewide to find the best artist to do phase two and then phase three. But first we have to get funded and we hope that the council will fund us. Anything? Any other questions? We won't buy it, I promise. Actually, I might. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell you one thing. Ours never sounded better with an accent like that. <laughs> I'm like, we just need him just talking all the time. Like, of course, we'll take money. Now you're getting comedy coin. I'm back. Yeah, it's, we're here. That was fantastic. And what a nice presentation. Give them a round of applause for that. It was great. I hope you guys all liked that because I was part of that in the early phases. And I'm glad to see what it's turning into now. And Nancy and Bear, his name's Bear for God's sakes to boot. Bear in an accent like that. That's fantastic. I wish I could do it. All right. I am now am very honored to present our third presenter. Third present, presenter, third presenter. I like saying that. Who is, I probably have known for, I don't know, it's been 300 years, I think. Um, she's part of those 15 years I forgot. Maybe, right? <laughs> but this is Nina Gabrianelli. And Nina is an outstanding, fantastic 
performer who is also the director of the Aspen Historical Society. She has done performances here. She does one-woman shows. And I'm getting off stage. I'm going to let her do her thing. So Nina, please join us on stage. You're welcome. So good evening, everyone. My name is Nina Gabbianelli, and I am actually um, the vice president at the Aspen Historical Society, but I'm in charge of all the education and programs that we do here. Um, but I was asked to talk to you about backstage as an actress, uh, even stories from New York, where I spent many years, or stories from here. And as I was thinking about it, I was really inspired by the gentleman who played uh, as, as we started tonight, when I think about my career when I was in high school and having the opportunity to perform for people and finding what I felt I needed to do for the rest of my life, what I was going to do. And, and I knew exactly what it was going to look like. And I went off to college. I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music. Um, I did spend two years at the University of Denver, gratefully, um, my freshman and sophomore year, because that introduced me to the mountains. Um, but I found that um, in order to be an actress, you had to be in New York City, uh, a stage actress at least. And that was what I thought was the way that it had to be done. So after getting a BFA in musical theater, um, I went directly to New York City, and this was in um, January of 1985. So this is uh, when I was doing theater, you actually did have to hit the boards, if you would. You printed your pictures and your resumes, and you went into agents' offices, and you walked around, and the business part of it was rather difficult. Um, and it was not a piece of it that I excelled in. I excelled in the onstage, but the backstage, the working, the producing myself and marketing myself and finding the agents, and, and that was rather difficult. Um, it didn't keep me from working. Um, I worked quite a bit regionally um, outside of New York City. I did a national tour for uh, about a year. I did one off-Broadway show. Um, it was a backstage musical about a beauty pageant for large and lovely women. And um, <clears throat> it was actually called Pretty Faces. Um, and at that time, I was uh, the understudy for the two leads and the stage manager. Um, it was an equity job. I had gotten my equity card, which is the Professional Actors Union, um, at about age 26. And um, this was an equity job, and I thought it was, you know, the cat's meow. Now, let me just tell you, we were in a theater in what they now call Chelsea, but was at that time the garment district. Um, so basically, they were empty, um, rather unkept warehouse buildings, and we were up on the second floor of one of those buildings in a theater that seated, I think it was 99 people, which keeps your contract low enough that they don't have to pay you more than about $75 a week. That was a professional contract, okay? Um, and uh, I did get to go on one night, pack the theater. It was, uh, it was a pretty an amazing experience. Um, <clears throat> but for me, the, the business of, of being an actor in New York City was more difficult than I could uh, discipline myself to do. Let's put it that way. And um, so I found myself deciding that in order to be happy, I was going to have to give up the thing that I wanted the most, and that was being an actor. 
And I decided that in order to find happiness, to find that relationship, to have a family, to somehow fill whatever was empty and not being filled by this business, um, in my mid-30s, as I was still working for, I, I had worked my way up to some small professional theater contracts, and believe it or not, that's the contract that Theater Aspen uses today, the professional contract. It's an SPT contract. In 1980, uh, 1995, that contract paid $250 a week. Booyah! And I lived in New York City by myself in an apartment in Queens. So I was paying my rent with some of that money, but I also was using my American Express card. Um, dinner consisted of SpaghettiOs, and you know, not because I had the choice of anything else, but that was, that was what dinner would consist of. Um, and I did have to save money for vodka, so there's that. Um, but uh, I decided, after that final contract, I did a, an amazing show called Falsettos. It was a beautiful show. It was very powerful, very emotional, an incredibly fulfilling, creative experience as an actor and as a singer. Um, but I decided that that wasn't enough, and I wanted something more stable and steady, and I needed a 401k, right? Um, so I became a restaurant manager. Um, how that, in my mind, was more steady, I'm not quite sure. But what I did was I opened a trade magazine in New York, because in between jobs, I would work in restaurants, and I very quickly found that I didn't like being told what to do, so I became a manager. Well, I got to tell you, if you want to get a job and you're 30, become a restaurant manager, because no one wants to do it. It is a horrible job, um, and you make less money than the waiters more often than not. But I liked being you know, in charge and up in the front. It was still somewhat presentational and performance. I was the maitre d' in a couple of big deal restaurants in the theater district, you know, seating uh, pretty you know, amazing actors I would meet. It was, it was not such a horrible thing, but I decided I was gonna join a corporation called the Chart House Corporation. And for those of you who've been around in this valley for a while, you may or may not know, the Chart House started in Aspen in 1961. That was the first chart house. Um, their second one was out in Newport Beach in uh, California, and then they began to gather other properties, mostly beautiful locations. And I moved to Sausalito, California with the Chart House Corporation. So I moved across the country. They paid for the move. I thought that was pretty sweet. And I ended up managing that chart house in Sausalito for about a year and a half. Um, I gave away all of my music and all of my theater books. I was done, that I was not doing that life anymore. And when I was in Sausalito, you know, occasionally I could get talked into maybe singing at a bar, but I really just didn't do it. I, I had this wall that I had built up and I had decided that this was a better life for me, but I found that I was no happier than I had been before. And eventually the opportunity came to come to Aspen with the Charthouse Corporation. I had actually uh, vacationed here almost every year from about 85 to 99 when I finally moved here. The first week of March, I came and I skied because my dad and my mom came and my father would say, you want to come skiing? And I'm a starving actress in New York City. So yes is the answer to that question. Um, and I found that Aspen was uh, a town where I felt at home. In this valley, I felt comfortable. I felt as though I was where I was supposed to be. Um, it was just a, 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 a you know, a, um, intangible piece of, of being here. And when I came here with the Chart House, it was the fall of 1999, and um, 
I can remember New Year's Eve as we move into the new millennium. Um, I was standing outside with one of my waitresses uh, watching the fireworks. So we're on Durant Street there at Monarch. Um, we'd been working all night. And just before midnight, this woman had been screaming at me because her artichoke hadn't come out and her waitress was terrible. And I finally just looked at her and I went, you know what? It's midnight. It's the millennium. We're going to talk about this in 10 minutes. I'm out. And I went outside and I stood with that waitress out on the street and cried. Um, as we turned in the I thought, what the hell have I done? Because here I was in a town where I knew no one and I was managing a restaurant with a bunch of kids who, they were better than the surfers in Sausalito, but um, they were still ski bums and a lot of them had been there for a long time and there was a big boys world there in the chart house up in Aspen. Um, and I decided that maybe I needed to reevaluate my decision to come here. And over the course of the next few months, I um, got up the nerve to audition for um, Aspen Community Theater. And I played a crow in The Wizard of Oz with a professional equity card. Now, <laughs> hope nobody's in here from equity because that's against the law. Um, but I don't have that card anymore. Because over the course of the next couple of years, I decided that, you know what, I'm going to be able to work in this town and do theater again, which I love to do, but not with that professional equity card. I was going to have to give that up. You know, that, that piece that I thought was, that's the only way to get to Broadway. That was the only way to get the Tony Award. That was the only way to be the famous Nina that I thought I was going to be when I was 12 years old. Um, and... You know, even though when asked, I always said, you know, I don't want to be famous. I just, to, success to me, I had always said this, was just to be working, right? And in the career that I wanted to be working in. Well, over the course of the last 18 years, living here, uh, or 19 years in September, actually, that I have lived here in this valley, um, I have had the opportunity to not only uh, get out of the restaurant business, thank you, God, um, but I also have found ways to perform in this valley outside of what I had ever imagined it would look like. Um, I started doing a few children's theater shows with Theater Aspen, um, at that time Theater in the Park. Um, I've had the opportunity to spend about six years working at the Crystal Palace, um, where I did manage the restaurant and was a featured performer, so I kind of combined both worlds. Um, when that closed, I did a couple of Theater Aspen shows. I was, um, I did Annie with them as Miss Hannigan, and you know, it was fun to work in that professional theater world, but it's, it's a full-time job. And I had just recently taken on a position at the Aspen Historical Society as the sites and tours manager is what I started doing there. And what I found is that uh, in a world that I knew nothing about, education, nonprofits, history, um, I can use my theater background and I can teach. I love teaching. I had no idea. I can tell stories. I'm a storyteller. Now that I knew, I just didn't know how to go about doing it, right? And so I was able to combine a lot of different things that I had as, as my training and my background. And we have museum theater pieces that we present. Last Saturday, we did a briefly complete history of Aspen in front of over 200 plus people on the grounds of the Wheeler Stollard Museum in Aspen, a play that my coworker Mike Monroney wrote and that we perform 140 years of history in 45 minutes with three actors. It's great fun. I also had the great opportunity to work with Thunder River Theater Company last year in developing a new cabaret series called Diva Cabaret. And I produced a, a cabaret show, something that I had done in New York City quite a bit, 
Um, but at an age when I didn't know what the hell I was doing, I didn't know what I was talking about. Now I have a story to tell. I'm old enough to have something to share and something to give and something to motivate and something to hopefully inspire. And um, that for me has turned out to be so much greater than being on Broadway, doing the same damn thing eight shows a week, right? Um, I actually sometimes do get two days off in a row, not in the summer, but that's another story. So um, in this valley, I've been able to play roles I could never have done in New York. In this valley, I've been able to be supported by people that I know. You know, I look out into the audience and there are friends and, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to have these familiar faces. I, I go to the groceries. When my friends come from out of town or my family, it's kind of embarrassing to, to me sometimes, although I love it, um, to walk down the street because it's, oh, hi, Nina. Hi, Nina. Hi, Nina. I'm a big fish in a small pond and I am not embarrassed to tell you I like that. It works great. Would I want to be really famous and like not be able to go out and you know that whole, that's scary. What I've got is perfect because I know you and I enjoy presenting to you and it makes it even more fulfilling to me to be able to share something new with you. Uh, the improv company at Thunder River Theater Company, Consensual Improv, in, and, and I've used this stage. In fact, Ryan, I think, told me I may be the person who has performed on this stage more than anyone else in the past uh, 10 months, 11 months. Um, I produced a, a show called Love, Loss, and What I Wore, a beautiful Nora Ephron piece with some of my friends here in town because we wanted to do a play. I've done my cabaret act here. I've done consensual improv here. So, you know, there's such opportunity available in this valley, but like Glenn said, you have to create it. And so here, I'm able to just let my mind kind of go wild, and I can create whatever I want. And I have this incredible supportive community surrounding me that I give back to, I certainly hope, through education, through my association with the Historical Society, and, and through my, my great love of being able to, to of being, uh, yeah, able to share what I love to do. So um, I feel extraordinarily grateful. And, um, you know, the thing I always tell young kids, if there's anything else that you can do, do it, if you want to be an actor. And I think it's also, you have to keep in mind, it doesn't have to look exactly the way you think it's going to look. If you kind of get rid of whatever it's supposed to be, the possibilities are infinite. And I thank you all very much for your time this evening.